I'm Jackie Rotman. I'm the founder and CEO of Center for Intimacy Justice. And I believe Femtech is a collective and a movement and community of people of all genders working toward a common goal of uh, improving human health and well-being. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated Femtech team is proud to partner with members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash femtech. Alrighty, Fem fans, in today's episode, I interviewed Jackie Rotman, the founder for the Center for Intimacy Justice. Jackie has been a social entrepreneur for over 15 years. She has also worked in venture capital with a particular focus on women's health and sexual wellness. In 2019, she wrote a New York Times investigative op-ed on the sexual wellness market, which made the New York Times' most popular list and was the opinion section's display piece. Today, Jackie is the founder and CEO of Center for Intimacy Justice. This organization is leading the movement to rewrite corporate advertisement policies in tech companies to allow advertisements for sexual health and wellness for women and people with vulvas. These ads are systemically censored, which causes huge barriers for femtech companies. The Center for Intimacy Justice believes in catalyzing greater technological innovation and investment, education, and cultural understanding toward female sexual health, and building a culture of greater equality, agency, and well-being. Learn more at intimacyjustice.org. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Jackie. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany, it's so good to be on here and talk with you. It is my pleasure to have you on. You know, we like to diversify the types of voices we have on. And you are this really interesting advocate group working on something that's pertinent to almost all of our listeners, whether they be entrepreneurs, investors, or just consumers themselves. It affects them. So I'm really excited for this interview. Thank you for your time. Yeah, and I love all the work you're doing. It's so great to get to connect. Let's kick off the interview with learning more about you. Our listeners always want to kind of know the human behind uh, the interview. So tell us a little bit about your story, where you're from, and, you know, your journey, your career. How did you end up here? Yeah, my story in the sexual wellness and women's health space really starts five years ago. I was in grad school at Harvard Kennedy School, and I had an unusual upbringing in that my dad was really open, really empowering when it specifically on topics of women's sexual pleasure. So basically going back from my grandfather to my dad and then through my brother 
when like men in my family start dating a woman for the first time, they get this talk about female pleasure that is like very scientific and dispels myths and is about the clitoris and making sure that they understand that female pleasure is associated with the clitoris and that, yeah. And then Hollywood makes, you know, a lot of these myths of like women having orgasms solved from intercourse is, is not the majority of women. So literally my dad gave that lecture to my brother. He'd gotten it from his dad and my mom wasn't having those conversations with me. And so my dad would have these really like supportive conversations that I never really appreciated when I was like 19. And he was talking about this quirky, crazy stuff that I thought was just so strange. But in my mid twenties in a leadership class at Harvard, I shared some stories about my dad and I started to realize how special that was. And all these people started to ask me questions about their intimate lives or parenting. And I realized that, wow, you can make such a positive impact in people's lives in the area of sexuality. I had already, I'd been a social entrepreneur since I was a teenager. I started my first nonprofit when I was 14. That's like still going, um, you know, almost two decades later. And, uh, but I never thought about, you can create impacts related to like people's intimate lives. And, started to think about it in 2017, started to learn about all these incredible entrepreneurs that were innovating in, in sex tech and realized pretty, you know, knew pretty quickly that I, I knew before I knew what the word sex tech was, that I wanted to be a part of this space. Um, but I also started to learn about how silenced women were being on topics of sexual health and pleasure. Uh, and I really, uh, empathized with it, especially because when I was at Harvard, I was also, I really faced a really traumatic experience where I needed to report sexual assault and was really told in the process that I wasn't allowed to and had my voice really stifled. So I think part of why I have empathized with entrepreneurs who are censored from sharing information about women's health is that it's so connected to this experience that we have so much more broadly of being censored and silenced and I think a part of a broader societal transformation that's needed is about reclaiming and being able to speak our voices. Yeah. I have a lot of listeners give me feedback on the show saying like, you're just so real. And I'm like, yeah, you so are when you have a platform and you can just say whatever you want and talk about your body and your experiences. And, you know, people eat it up because women are so censored. It's like a rare thing to hear real life stories. It really is. Yeah. And it's, it's a privilege to be in spaces where you have that freedom and like to be able to create other spaces, especially as entrepreneurs, you get to design your own company culture and, you know, people I've interviewed people that are like, I don't know whether I should disclose this experience if I'll be discriminated against. And you're like, no, this is a space where when you get to set the values, you get to make people feel really supported. Yeah. I do think about that, especially with uh, abortion. I talk very openly about having it had an abortion, interviewing people about abortion and, uh, or even an eating disorder. And there are days that I think, who's listening to this and are they going to not hire me? You know, and for me, I say, well, if they're, if they don't want to hire me because of that, then I don't want to work for them. You know, who I want to work for would hear these stories and be like, wow, what a powerful woman, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And you magnetize those people to partner with. It's amazing. So what is center for intimacy justice? Center for Intimacy Justice is a nonprofit organization, and we do various campaigns at the intersection of sexuality and social equality. So our first area that we've been working on 
is ad equality. We're working to, and we'll talk a lot about that on this in, in this conversation, but the high level is we're working to change discriminatory ad policies that censor health for women and people with vulvas. And that's our first issue area that we focused on, but over time and, you know, hopefully for decades to come, we'll be working on other issues. Some of them have to do with family law and alternative family structures. Others have to do with sexual assault and creating trauma-informed cultures. We're really passionate about changing our cult, like fundam- changing our culture related to our, our sexual culture and creating spaces where intimacy is a place of equity and equality and well-being and freedom. So our mission ties to that long-term, but most of our work um, the last couple of years has been zeroing in on changing Meta's advertising policies to allow women sexual health. And we're a team of about five women right now and a, and a bunch of other advisors that are um, really passionate about this. So excited to dive deep into ad equality and Meta and all that stuff. Before we do, um, how do you define intimacy? No, yeah, I. I don't know that I have a specific definition because, but it has to do with connection for me. Like, obviously a lot of our work has to do with sexuality, but intimacy is so much broader. I mean, it could be like I've had, I remember, you know, you can have intimacy with nature, like not in a sexual way, of course, Mm -hmm. but just being able to feel connected. And I think intimacy is, is so connected to what it, what it is to be human, which is we're all living a shared experience as different humans and other parts of nature. And to me, intimacy is what connects different beings together. Love that. And if you're censored, connection is pretty hard to do, right? So hundred percent. Um, when and why did you start for Center for Intimacy Justice? Yeah, starting in 2017, I I was I started researching the sexual health and wellness space and then meeting tons of entrepreneurs starting in 2018. And I realized pretty quickly that there were already so many innovative products. I wanted to do something different than starting a product company. I really wanted to help the infrastructure of the field. Like you mentioned Cindy Gallup um, at the start of this call. And she was somebody that was, you know, and, and others were talking about how do we elevate sex tech as a whole? How do we move forward this wave together? And I thought that investing, at first I was interested in investing. I thought investing in what you're doing, um, I thought it can be one valuable way to do it because you get to have a systems level, you support and get capital into tons of different, you know, several different entrepreneurs. So for a while I considered, I worked in investing with a VC fund and, and also with Rhea Ventures and considered starting a fund. But I I felt that this advertising bar- blockage and barrier was so crucial to the entire entrepreneurial ecosystem and to the investment space, because if these companies can advertise, it will make all of these amazing women-led funds like yours uh, be able to achieve the returns that you deserve to be and should be able to achieve. And it will allow more funding to go into the space. You're like nodding, nodding, nodding for those who are listening on podcast. Um, So I just, I said like, let's, let's work on, uh, on creating um, advocacy for advertising equality. And so we created it as a nonprofit. So we could also partner with amazing philanthropic partners. Like the case for her has been our first major, major catalytic backer. Um, and it was really just filling a, a, a huge need and gap, um, to be able to bring together so many different, um, investors and people to, and, you know, and companies together in support of this ad advertising trend, uh, reform. 
Yeah, as I, you know, write papers and blogs and speak on women's health, I always am, you know, trying to narrow down, like, what are the top four barriers to advancing women's health innovation? And one of the four major Mm -hmm. pillars is blocked ads, Um, because uh, you can put all the money you want, but if the, you know, platforms Mm -hmm. that be say the ad won't run, all the money doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. we can't sell it if we can't advertise it. Um, if we can't talk about it. So let's get into this. What is ad equality? Yeah. So we can start by sharing the what the problem is right now. And for people outside of women's health, a lot of people have never heard of this, where basically we have this, you know, incredible rising um tide of all these people starting companies and, you know, you'll go start your entrepreneurial journey and create a startup and go to advertise your product, which is an essential part of innovation to be able to get information out and reach customers and people with information. And right now, a lot of, um, tech platforms, but also other ad platforms are, you know, in, like billboards or out of home ads are saying that ads that have to do with women's sexual health are mis they're they're classifying them as adult products. So you see it especially with uh AI or tech platforms because the algorithms are flagging things like menopause and pelvic pain as adult products or things like fertility and contraception or parenting pregnancy related ads. They are not distinct they they're just they the algorithms are not advanced enough to be able to allow these health ads. And then in more of the policy sphere, that's not to do with algorithms. Um, other, other platforms are also banning certain ads, you know, commercials and things like that. So it's not just tech. Um, and it, it stunts the entire entrepreneurial ecosystem. We can talk about the ways that it does, but with ad equality, we're working to reform these their corporate ad policies. It's not like a government law that's saying you can't advertise. It's companies like Facebook, TikTok, Google, LinkedIn, and others that are taking down the content. Um, and of course they can be influenced by law and government, but it's corporate practices that need to change so that, um, you know, the entrepreneurial and market systems can do what they need to of getting people information that they, that they need to support their health. And so why is basic female things like our biological processes, our stages of life, why are they considered adult? And by adult, you mean like sex, drugs, violence, like I'm trying to think of like our age, yeah. what do they normally say, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, go just so, you know, why are, why are they considering women's bodies R-rated adult content? Yeah, there's double standard in how they're applying specifically the the for Facebook, the policy for adult is around sexually. It's it's content that Facebook is seeing as sexual. So they're they're classifying a large amount, many, many categories of women's health as sexual. Like if, you know, Rachel Brunsher always says like, I've surveyed my friends about whether vaginal dryness is overly sexual. And like the unanimous answer is no, but you know, (laughs) things like vaginal dryness, these, these will just be flagged as like, oh, that's, that's sexual. That's explicit. Um, and there's a historical, I mean, it, it used to be that contraception until I think around the thirties, maybe later, like, no, sometime in the first half of the 1900s, it, um, 30 States had on the books that you couldn't 
advertise or sell uh, any form of contraception. Like that was considered obscene. Or even there were these Comstock laws that made it so even sending um, like a letter that might have had like a love letter that had some sexual undertone used to be legal through the U.S. Postal Service. So there's a historical um, precedent for lots of information being censored that is being seen as sexual, but it's incredibly far reaching where, I mean, I think most people would, would say that like menopause ads should be allowed and shouldn't be getting misclassified as sexual. Yeah. And I guess the real issue here, I mean, censorship is the issue, but the issue really is in the inequality that exists for men's bodies being allowed to be advertised. So I think now we can go into what is ad equality. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the gender difference. Um, so in 2017, Hims and Roe were founded and there, I mean, there's, of course, there's many other men's health companies, but these two companies were significant. They were started to because they raised so much funding so quickly. They were started to address erectile dysfunction. The Viagra patent was about to expire and had some licensing agreements. There were shifts in telemedicine. And these two companies, both started by men, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars very quickly at very high valuations. Yeah. Now it's been like yeah. definitely a lot, like, a lot more, but I, I just mentioned the first couple of years, but yeah, now it's like mm-hmm. a massive amount of money that they've raised. Um, you're right. And, um, early on, some people talked with Facebook and made it so erectile dysfunction was allowed. Exceptions were made for these companies that have now from a financial standpoint, been able to grow to massive, massive evaluations. Like I think as of last year, Roe was valued at $5 billion um, just last year. And then Hims was, you know, it's public now, but at one point it was 1.6 billion. And they've just raised an enormous amount of money that's then going into the, you know, these male founded companies. And in the same five years, companies that have been addressing women's health that have been founded by women, you know, often invested in by women like you, haven't been able to achieve that growth. So there's been a huge difference in the financial trajectories of entrepreneurs based on what you started with. And also Hims moved into, I mean, Hims has gotten vibrator ads allowed because their their ad accounts are so large and they have such influence that these companies that often started as men raised a lot of money can now occasionally advertise things that no other, you know, that other women's health companies can't advertise because of the amassing of power. But that's more on the financial side, but then from a health standpoint, because we see erectile dysfunction and the Super Bowl commercials and on the radio constantly, it's really destigmatized. I mean, before 2017, I didn't know anyone who had erectile dysfunction and it was quieted and shameful. And now it's like, you know, get Viagra delivered directly to your door. And it's done positive things too at reducing shame, but the health conditions that could be getting shared with women about PCOS or endometriosis, or just talking about women's sexual wellness or lubrication, we can't get that same information to, to people with vulvas that need it because of the ad censorship. So it's, and I'll just briefly also share a couple examples of the types of ads. If people see our, if people go to intimacyjustice.org slash report, you'll see a lot of visual examples that we've created and Polly Rodriguez from Unbound and, and others have collected like Dame with the approved, not approved campaign have collected a lot of um, different examples of the double standards, but you'll see like get hard or get your money back is allowed for erectile dysfunction with like these eggplants or roosters like that are signifying cocks. These are all allowed, but then going for a jog, you know, women running in a field with an option to talk to your teledoctor about menopause is banned. So it's a huge discriminatory gender difference. 
And so these ads are screened not by humans, right? It's algorithms. And so, you know, what boggles my mind is like, how can the algorithm know if it's a chicken breast being promoted mm-hmm. by, you know, Chick-fil-A or <laughs> it's breastfeeding being promoted by biomilk or something, right? Like, yeah. so tell, can, do we even know, is it like this mysterious black box or like who, who, and how is it deciding what's appropriate and what isn't? Yeah, there's two policies on the adult or sexual content side that these often get flagged into. One is adult products. So most of the examples we've been talking about, the other is adult content, which is for nudity and what they call sexually explicit content. And it's interesting you mentioned breastfeeding because we talked to the company Liquid Gold Concept that has a a breastfeeding simulator that they sell to hospitals and doctors and educators to educate new parents about lactation. That medical simulator was flagged as nudity because it looks like breasts or, you know, Flex, which sells period products and Diva Cups had a picture, a medical diagram of a uterus on their website that was flagged and prevented them from advertising because that was seen as inappropriate, like sexual nudity kinds of depictions. So um, it's, these algorithms will flag nudity, but other products, we think that the word vagina gets flagged a lot more than others, which makes it difficult to say vaginal lotion, vaginal microbiomes, vaginal dryness, and and things where you need to be able to talk about anatomy to educate people about health. Um, So the algorithms are a black box. Facebook doesn't have to share information about their algorithms. It's all proprietary. So um, it's hard to know exactly what's happening other than sharing accounts of people saying, you know, these are the words that are more commonly getting flagged, like vagina and several other words. But there is also um, another lens that it's also intersectional beyond gender. So things like size, bodies with like a skin ratio where there's more skin, the algorithms are picking up. And so like those bodies, their ads get, or pictures get through less than very thin bodies, which is another form of discrimination. Um, and then we've seen that there's ads for white women versus women of color for a women's health ad where, um, a company called Rosewoman told us that their ads of women of color, they, the products were getting flagged more as like drugs, like, you know, drugs like meth. So they were racist algorithms. Um, so it's beyond gender in terms of the other intersectional lenses where these algorithms are oppressing people and, and people, the internet has created more opportunities for expression, but it's also magnified the repression of certain bodies, voices, people, because of uh, the exponential expansion of the censorship that um, is is certainly affecting people across different identities more than others. Yeah. And so for those who have never run an ad before, you keep saying, you know, the ads, the ads get flagged. What is, yeah. what is the process of your ad being blocked? And what is that experience like for a business owner? Yeah. So you'll submit the ad and then that Facebook is rejecting them. So it doesn't let you run them altogether. And sometimes it still takes the advertisers money. Um, and also for content often, you know, TikTok will just, even not for ads, TikTok will just take down your content altogether if it gets classified as sexual, you know, and again, it's often like sex education. It's, it's just things that are really valuable and should be allowed. But also Facebook and Instagram will do shadow banning where your content um, will just reach fewer people because Facebook sees it as some sort of 
inappropriate information that gets flagged. But on the ad side, they'll just reject your ad altogether, tell you that you violated the policy. You'll have an option to appeal that's very time consuming. And then either at the end of the appeal, it'll stay banned or you might be able to get, you know, maybe a quarter of your menopause ads through, but you're wasting a ton of staff time. And then of course your account could get, you know, 50% of the 60 companies that Center for Intimacy Justice studied in a report found that 50% of the, the 60 companies had their entire accounts banned altogether. And many of them never get the accounts back. Or I've talked to some entrepreneurs where they've lost it for years or are permanently banned. Some will be blocked for six months, you know, maybe in between a seed round and when they need to raise a series A and hit bigger numbers. And they're just excluded from that. And the impact on a business it is, it's just so impactful because, you know, you're running a startup, you have to spend money, you have to hit certain numbers and reach certain growth trajectories, especially if you're on a VC path where you want to attract venture capital funding to be like a, an exponentially growing company. But when you can't advertise, it's, you know, it's, you can reach profitability or grow linearly, but it's close, you know, it, you, it's impossible to reach the same growth as those that can access Facebook and Google advertising because it's one of the largest engines for business growth. So it it stunts all it stunts your opportunities to grow, to raise money, to like employ other people. And we know that women employ more women at like massive, massively more rates. So it, you know, prevents people from being able to employ other women. But then that the last piece I'll share about the impact is it's also, it also prevents you to, you know, be preventing health information, but it's also emotionally really difficult. Like we get, I just got an email yesterday from someone I've never mentioned that was just like, this is so hard. And I just needed to share it with somebody, an entrepreneur, or I've talked to entrepreneurs where it literally affects their mental health because they feel so silenced and stigmatized. And it makes it harder for them to just feel healthy as entrepreneurs because Facebook is telling them that they're doing something inappropriate or they wake up never knowing if today's the the day that their entire business, they're flooding their lives into are going to be shut down at both the uncertainty and the insulting, stifling information has a real human impact on people that are doing this. That is also um, valuable and measurable and a part of the human equation with this too. What is the response of Meta and, you know, Twitter and Google and all everywhere else where they're flagging stuff, you know, like obviously they've probably gotten our complaints, right? Is there any human on the other side of the screen saying, oops, you're right. Like, sorry, here, go ahead, do it. You know, like what, what are the corporate's responses to this? Yeah. The first, um, well, we're seeing a lot of people reading the report and a lot of people senior in meta. So we're really interested to figure out what's, what are the conversations, what's happening internally? And, um, you know, is there interest in fixing this? I'll say the public response with things like meta's public comments in response to the New York times article and other, um, articles that reached out to them is that, uh, these platforms will is that Meta will say, oh, this is a mistake. Our processes aren't perfect. So they often concede that they think that menopause, uh, they're, they're, they often will say this is a mistake, which sort of concedes that menopause should be allowed. And they even wrote, uh, they changed their policy in the last couple of years. So now it explicitly says that ads to relieve vaginal dryness 
like lubrication or lubricant are allowed, but then in practice that nothing's actually changed is what entrepreneurs are saying about the practical experience. But it appears that they're saying, you know, sometimes this is a mistake, but we haven't yet seen them prioritize fixing it and they can fix it. And also they're now for the first time ever having to answer to Congress on this issue as of February because of the response to Center for Intimacy Justice Report in January that led Senator Patty Murray and Senate Health Committee to ask Facebook questions. So we know that Facebook is having to answer to Congress and the questions that Senator Patty Murray and her committee and team are demanding from Facebook, but those that's all just congressional private information. So we don't, the public doesn't know what those reports are saying, but they clearly know about the problem. And so we're, you know, we have eyes on them waiting to see, like, will you fix this? This shouldn't take more than two or three years. And, you know, let alone, they could fix this very fast if they wanted to. Yeah, they could, right? And especially because we're offering our money to run these ads. Yeah. Not even like, we're like, give, we're giving you more money. Um, yeah, tell totally. us about this report that you just mentioned. It's obviously a very pivotal report. You're in the New York Times. Congress is paying attention. I saw even uh, Hillary Clinton retweeting a tweet about this. So very exciting. Tell us about this report. What was it? Who did you, what did you study? Who did you, who was involved? What were the results? Yeah. And I love the research that you've put out about this too. It's like, we, it, it's, it's all, you're, you're, it's all so valuable to work together on this. And we, so yeah, we did a survey of 60 women's health companies and in January, 2020, we published the report. New York times was the first to write about it and 68 media outlets, including morning brew and PR weekly and many others followed, um, was mentioned in Vogue and, and, and many other outlets. And what we found is that of all 60 companies we studied, all of which were led by women or non-binary leaders and founders, Every single one of the 60 companies had had a meta platform. So Facebook or Instagram rejects an ad and 50% of them had had Facebook suspend their entire accounts at some point. So we all knew this. You knew this. I knew this. People in women's health knew this, but being able to put that data and and to show it's hundred percent of all of these companies. And so we know it's thousands of companies, not 60. That was just a sampling. Being able to put that in the public eye outraged people from, you know, feminist activists that were reading this, who are like leaders that have, that were standing on to, to Congress and other people that read this and, and were outraged and have taken action. So, um, Hillary Clinton tweeted about this in February and we think it was really like, it was actually or no, organic. Like she, just wrote, uh, you know, Hey Patty, or who's Senator Patricia Murray. Um, just curious if Facebook responded to the questions that Senator Patty Murray sent them, um, which was an important historical moment to see this rise to that level of, um, leadership with Hillary Clinton and made a lot of people feel seen. So that was one of the responses. But I think now that this is in the public, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of other articles writing about it, a lot of other movements, um, that where other people are acting together in response. So I think the report was just really valuable for getting the information out and um, people can read it and see more about the types of companies that were included and the visual examples. And of course it talked about the gender differences um, was, was what it was emphasizing was saying that this is 
treated differently for men than it is for women and people with vulvas. And of those 60 companies, just to put this in the context, like how many of those were actually sex tech versus fertility or maternal health or things that we see as beautiful, right? We're always sharing maternity photos and stuff, but God forbid we talk about what happens to your pelvic floor, right? (laughs) So of your 60 companies, what were some of the distribution of what were they working on? Yeah, the categories were menopause, pelvic pain, fertility, contraception, pregnancy and postpartum care, um, education, including some nonprofits that were providing sexual and uh, and reproductive health education. There was one out of the 60 was an abortion care provider, Hey Jane. And there were a few other categories. Pleasure made up about 10 percent of the companies um, or 10 percent of our current data set. Actually, it's probably even more than 90 percent now that are companies besides pleasure. Um, So that was a component of it. But then there were many, many other aspects of health in addition to it. Yeah. And so we recovered the negative effects it has on a business and probably many more. But just to kind of like off the bat, the initial consequences, what consequences does ad censorship have on the female consumer? Yeah, so many. It this one stat that always blows me away is that it takes and I've seen this from Onet's ads that they tried to get through. It says that, you know, it takes three and a half years to sail around the world. It takes seven to ten years to get an endometriosis diagnosis from the onset of symptoms, which is a condition that causes all kinds of pain, including, you know, pain during sex, but lots of other challenges and fertility challenges. Um, a lot of people have chronic health conditions in women's health who don't know because their doctors are inequipped to tell them there's stigma. And then this ad censorship further prevents information getting in their hands. And so a lot of women who are being disregarded by the medical system already, where people aren't listening to their symptoms or tell them just to, you know, take a Tylenol or have a glass of wine when they're having like serious pain, um, or serious vaginal pain or other types of pain. Um, it makes it harder for them to get information. And it, and it also, there's also another piece of it where um, there's this example, there's a company called that provides uh, menopause uh, called uh, support and relief called Kendra. And because they can't say that vagina in their ads, they'll have to say things like V or, you know, down there or these other words instead of vagina and women will feel insulted where they'll say like, you're insulting me because you can't say the word vagina, not knowing that it's not the brand it's Facebook. That's kind of handcuffing them, but it also further, it further perpetuates stigma about women's bodies where when we can't have open conversations, it increases stigma and shame in a way that doesn't serve any of us. And frankly, just further perpetuates perpetuates obstacles for being in control of our own bodies and of our own sexuality in a way that goes far beyond health and has to do with women's sexual agency and empowerment at large. I mean, yes, I recently was talking to someone about endometriosis and they said, you know, well, it's genetic. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of times women get their, you know, period information from their moms. And if their mom has endometriosis that was never diagnosed and you complain to her about how bad your cramps are, she may likely say, yeah, well, yeah, that's how it feels. And so if there's Mm -hmm. no other directive in this girl's life to tell her that's not normal, like she'll never know it's not normal. Right. And so it's so debilitating that she thinks maybe I do have to talk to someone and then hopefully the doctor believes it. Right. So there's like all of these uh, um, domino effect of the woman being gaslit, right. The whole time. 
Um, and there's all this, yeah, go ahead. I was just say there's research where around painful sex, a lot of women, um, it's been measured that they just believe that painful sex is normal. And, um, or Sarah McClellan has done these research studies about sexual satisfaction, uh, where people don't have as high of expectations if they're a woman for what their intimate and sexual lives can look like. But there are other, many other studies besides hers as well about, um, just people, the normalization of painful sex for women. I think it's normal when actually it can be pleasurable and it can be powerful, but the narratives that, that censor communication about that further perpetuate people just believing, you know, I'm just not entitled to well-being, And this is just a normal part of life to have pain and, and, you know, never have an orgasm because of the disparate narratives and standards that we see in our society. Yeah. Um, I know that Dame Products, you know, they sued the New York City Metro, the subway system, because there was all these phallic looking hymns ads, but they tried to do something that kind of, uh, I, do you remember what the ads were that got blocked with was, what were they trying to portray? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had these pictures of clitoral vibrators and um, it was selling their sex toy products. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I actually have some of their products and I, I yeah, know their company, too. their products are not that like, they're not veiny yeah. penises, right? For yeah. Listeners, anyone who's like, oh, well, they were showing a sex toy. It, it's yeah. very, uh, it looks like a Tamagotchi. Like it looks like a little yeah. thing, right? Totally. It's not yeah. It's not, it's totally clitoral. It's not. Yes. Valid. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And they were so beautiful. The ads were so beautiful <laughs> and they were so witty and educational. It was like, you know, 98% of men like get where they're going because you know, it was like a subway uh, thing, but like only 60%, 8% of women get there or something like that. Like it was yeah. in a very educational way, nodding to the orgasm gap of these beautiful non-phallic clitoral ads. They were so awesome. Um, and even, yeah, and they got very muted even when two and a half years later, they could advertise, like you can't, you couldn't tell what the ads were for. I loved the original ads. Oh, so even after the lawsuit finished, there's still a lot of boundaries on what they can do and say. Yeah. It's abstract art. You, they couldn't show the product and you would look at the ads and wonder like, oh, I wonder what Dame is. <laughs> I mean, they're yeah. like still huge victory for Dame that they fought for for two and a half years. But I think even, you know, I think they wanted to be able to say what the products that they wanted to, to be clear. And the ads were only allowed to run for a quarter or a number of months, but none of their other, none of the, the rest of the category could never advertise. And they also weren't guaranteed to advertise beyond that brief stretch. But yeah, yeah it's, it's, it was abstract art, very difficult to tell what the ads were for and didn't lost the educational element too. And so, you know, but power to them still, it's just shows how far we have to still go. A hundred percent. They, you know, but like, so is our lawsuits, the solution, like let's, that's actually mm-hmm. my last question as we talk, you know, finish up talking about ad equality is um, what is, what do we do? Like, what do I do? Yeah. What do? What do listeners do? Like, what is the, <laughs> do we know what the solution is? It's probably mm-hmm. multi-pronged approach, but tell us what can we do? Yeah. The question we're asking is how can we increase our power? Like how can we have more power over this issue and a voice where Facebook has to listen to it? And I think one element of that is using, it's like wielding the media. I remember after I was um, dealing with a sexual assault and got the results where Harvard said it never happened. I like sat up and was like, we have to learn how to use the media because sometimes as women or people of, you know, diverse genders, um, or non-binary people, like v- using your voice in culture and, and publicity ends up being 
where we can go when laws fail and when courts fail or when systems fail us. Like we still have a voice that's loud and that people resonate with. So part of that is media advocacy. Um, I think the other key piece is we have like collectively, there's so much talent and so many powerful voices and, and also capital and financial support within the, among the thousands of people that are in this space and have an interest in it changing. And so we're working on how can we build more systematized ways that we can collectively work together. So Center for Intimacy Justice is creating a membership approach where we can, hundreds of companies can pull our resources together. And that's something that companies, businesses, nonprofits, investors, um, and individuals can be a part of. Um, and then for individuals listening that may not be with a company or an organization, um, there's a lot of brands to, to align with Center for Animacy Justice through our, our newsletter is one where as we do collective campaigns and partner with, you know, with you and with others on them, people can share their individual voices and petitions by joining upcoming campaigns. There is a longer conversation around what are our legal tactics since we've spent a year or two researching, like I could tell you, you know, these are the four tactics in the courts or through shareholder activism. And these are the pros and cons of that approach. So there's also been legal analysis done about if we do leverage law, what are our options? And one of the four that CIJ has found most promising is filing a federal trade commission complaint to pressure the government to, um, at the FTC level, sue Facebook. But we're also partnering directly with Congress and the Senate Health Committee to also leverage Congress's ability to pressure Facebook publicly. So there's a lot of approaches in addition to those that can be taken legally. Wow. You are doing very important work. I am so grateful that you're doing it because uh, as someone who supports founders and invests in founders, this is a critical issue, not only for Mm -hmm. like social equality, but like for smart investing. I I try Mm -hmm. to spend my day encouraging people to put their money into femtech and it's hard Mm -hmm. to do so when you also know that most of that money might go to waste because ads will get blocked and accounts will be taken down. Yeah, Uh, Our last two questions our listeners love. The first one is um, if someone wanted to start a femtech company, what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Yeah. Well, I would say, I think each individual founder brings their own life experiences. And so starting it goes like, like the recent, the, the writer, Louisa, Louisa May Alcott would say like, write about what you know about with same with entrepreneurship, like entrepreneur about what you know about. And so a lot of the founders in the space have started businesses of things that they have experiences with, but there's, you know, I'm personally very passionate about the woman's pleasure space. There's but there's so many other sectors that need innovation around parenting, pregnancy, birth, um, tons of other areas. And I think so much of it is about personal expertise and what can people bring in. And our, our individual lives are a skill. Like, you know, you can market a skill, like learning how to build a financial model or fundraise, but like our lived experiences are also, well, you know, our most valuable skills. So I think that's a really valuable place to start from as innovators. Do you think innovation and advertisement and marketing could be a femtech angle? A hundred percent. Yeah. CIJ is one of the first organizations working on this, but there's tons of space for collaborators. People can be strategists. People can be lawyers. People can be writers, authors, journalists, um, on ad equality, media creators. Like I really, we need to have a documentary film about this or other film and mainstream, like 
We're yeah, we need like a man. Netflix show, a hundred percent. So like we need multimedia creators and producers. Yeah. Like yes. there's tons of places where people can share about ad equality. And when you're sharing about ad equality, it's not just it's not just femtech. It's not just entrepreneurship. It's like empowering women to have a voice more broadly. It's like rethinking our norms around women's sexuality and culture and partnership. Like there's a cultural movement that's that people can be at the helm of. So we need more leaders in it. Like I got into the space five years ago after a wave of other people like Cindy Gallup and Polly Rodriguez and Alex Fine and others that were in it before. And like, there's just going to be more and more generations. Like we need we need all hands and ad equality is certainly a space where people can drive efforts, you know, lobbyists, like congressional policy strategy, tech policy, like there could be more specialists because we need all the talent we can get, but I want there to be a Netflix show about it. <laughs> Netflix, come on. I better be on it. Um, yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, our last question is what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? collective power. Um, and I think you're building that with Femtech Focus, like creating those communities. By the way, we your Femtech Focus job fair, which is like the best thing ever. We've met so many incredible, talented people. Amazing. But I think, yeah, spaces like that where we're collective power is always more powerful than individual power. And Femtech, you see that because we're a movement, we're together. Like you, you sent this email question before about like, what is Femtech? And I see it as a collective and I see it as a movement. And the more spaces we have to collectively share our power, you know, and, and even like a bunch of, there's a few entrepreneurs like uh, Unbounded Dame that were the first entrepreneurs to fund Center for Intimacy Justice or other philanthropists that have supported that. We're just, when we come together and like see this shared mission that we have together, we can be so much more powerful. So I love spaces where we can meet in person and just exponentify our hearts and minds and resources and tactics and strategies and brains. Um, and I also think that femtech needs ad equality. We need to be allowed to advertise and to nip this, you know, this needs to become part of the historical path, this discrimination and not a present 10 years or yeah. five years I from now. I cannot wait for that milestone to be accomplished when we can say, oh my God, remember when we couldn't <laughs> advertise about menopause, woman running in a field was inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Clothes, by the way, y'all, if you're like, yeah, what? Yeah. Go check out the uh, example on the website. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, Jackie, exactly. you're amazing. Thank you so you're much. You're amazing. I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for all you do. You're amazing. Thank you for listening to my interview with Jackie Rotman, the founder of for the Center of Intimacy Justice. Join the movement at intimacyjustice.org. Alrighty, Fem fans, be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other femtech founders, investors, and mentors advising and advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up for a FemPro membership, only $15 a month, and get access to assets like our Femtech company database and a self-guided Femtech accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech book club, which happens the last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.